everyone, this is the Dropping In Surf Show where we talk about math and a little bit of science with a whole lot of surfing. Today is May 20th, 2020. We're recording from Green Beret and Belmar and Keys, California. My name is Rob Case. I am a paddling technique coach and I teach surfers of all levels how to paddle with less effort, how to paddle faster, and how to prevent injury from paddling, and ultimately how to catch more waves with less effort. Uh, and my co-host today is a doctor of physical therapy. His name is Jim Sigelnik. Jim, I got a bone to pick with you, man. Uh-oh. <laughs> not a good start. <laughs> what do you mean, not a good start? It's a great start. All right, let's hear it. <laughs> so last week we talked about how long it took for the body to regain fitness after, mm-hmm. an, especially after an injury, mm-hmm. and I got really depressed. I got off the phone. Yeah. I, I got off the phone and I was like, "Dude, I, I'm I'm bummed." I didn't think he was gonna say it would take that long, and mm. yet, like maybe five seconds beyond that, I then said, "You know what? F Jim and F all those studies that said that." <laughs> And so this whole week, every time I would go paddle or swim or work out, I was extra focused to to beat, to be the uh, to be the anomaly in that study. Let's say right because every every study is not perfect, as we've discussed, uh, is, and there's always anomalies. Is it fair to say that I motivated you? Oh yes. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> is that what a PT is supposed to do? I thought well, I thought PT stands for physical torture. Yeah, there, there's that um, uh, pain and torture, physical torture, professional torture. <laughs> I've I've been called Torquemada, which I didn't even realize who Torquemada was. And for those of you curious, you can look that up. Um, he was a torturer um, uh, in historical past, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I guess I guess there's different styles of motivating people, and uh, there's the shame approach, uh, which oh, yes. is you you get made to feel guilty. There's the positive approach, and then there's uh, what I call the open-ended approach, which um, uh, uses open-ended question questioning and uh, lines of reasoning um, that are hopefully logical, but also uh, using techniques incorporating uh, motiv- motivational interviewing concepts. Which, uh, uh, per their name, are, are, are um, and, and psychologists and psychiatrists are more privy to this than a lot of physical therapists. But um, that kind of communication style has um, maybe a good way of motivating a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Well, it motivated the heck out of me, man. Yeah, sorry but, if I depressed you. No, no, it's all good. It's all good. It was it was really fun this week to really, and I wouldn't say that I worked much harder or did any more i just was extra focused and just uh that's cool really dialed into what i was doing so i'll be that i'll be the anomaly because and it got me thinking um along with your recent instagram post Mm -hmm. which on uh yeah which one um i had a couple this this one i'm gonna i know i want to make sure i say it correctly the prevalence of scapular dyskinesis mm-hmm. oh, in overhead and non-overhead athletes, which I found really interesting. And, you know, when, you know, as a math guy, I'm a probability math statistics. I'm looking at the numbers and man, this thing should not be concluding anything based on just numbers 
alone. Right. And so I looked at this going, oh man, that's there's a lot of anomalies that could be an anomaly. Maybe yeah. you maybe just for those that haven't seen your post, um, give us a summary of what what you said in it and what yeah. the study was about. Yeah, so now you can see why I'm I talk the way I talk, right? Um, it, it's it's very rarely black and white. Um, so uh, for those of you that don't know uh, what Rob just talked about, I guess you could either um, uh, review last week's episode or check out my Instagram at asaltypt. And um, uh, scapular dyskinesis uh, gets called a variety of things um, for individuals. So the, what typically happens is a patient maybe has shoulder pain and they go see their doctor and uh, or a physical therapist or chiropractor or a personal trainer. Um, and, and usually uh, the provider watches the patient lift their arm in various directions and the provider is standing behind the patient and he or she sees a shoulder blade that does something that looks like abnormal movement. And so if, if we all agree that most of the times normal movement of the shoulder blade when my arm goes up, my shoulder blade is really the foundation of the shoulder if the shoulder is like this complex comprised of four joints. And the shoulder blade, what gets called the scapulothoracic joint, which probably is better named the scapulo rib cage joint because it more sits flush on the rib cage. As the arm comes up, the shoulder blade um, kind of tacks to the rib cage and it elevates or rotates upward, we say, as the arm comes up. So a, a bunch of complicated things have to happen as I do this elevation motion with my arm. The shoulder blade has to do a thing called posterior tilt, which is the bottom portion uh, kind of tips like that towards the ribcage. And then it has to externally rotate, so it kind of faces um, more towards the lateral. And then it has to upwardly rotate as it elevates up. And so that's a really complicated, uh, what we call kinematic process. It's a really uh, 3D kind of motion. Um, and so types of winging was best described by a guy named Kibler, who um, he was a researcher that got really interested in scapular dyskinesis. And he's kind of the guy that's really been maybe one of the more leading researchers of it. And he's got various types. Um, and it, that all the different types are based on where um, maybe the abnormal movement is. But like people get told they have winging, which is type two Kibler, which is the most common, I think, which is you lift your arm um, in the inside part or what we call the medial border of the scapula or the shoulder blade kind of flares out as the arm comes up. And uh, so we would say, okay, that's scapular dyskinesis. And then there's um, uh, uh, type one, which is also called tipping, which is the inferior or bottom portion kind of flanges like that so the tip of the shoulder blade on the bottom kind of points points towards the observer and that can also happen up or down as the arm elevates or comes down and then there's uh, uh, type three which is essentially shrugging so it kind of looks like this so if I go to elevate my arm instead of my shoulder kind of staying down here it kind of does this here um, and sometimes that gets a little bit bit confused with what's called a dysarrhythmia, which is kind of like that, but more of a stuttering, um, either going up or going down to the shoulder blade. And so um, kind of what I was talking about last week, and I think I related it to gait, is 
everybody walks a little bit different and um, it'd be really easy to kind of point out all these mechanical flaws or you know flaws in quotes saying okay that's wrong that's wrong think of walking like this point your toes forward and where we're kind of coming in in the world of physical therapy and maybe orthopedic research are is it maybe an understanding that um, certain things that we were calling flaws might be within normal limits of variances and so these kind of findings the winging the tipping um, these kind of like scapular dyskinesia findings might be one of those things in the shoulder. And so when I went to school, um, scapular dyskinesia was thought to be either the reason for causing shoulder pain or a precursor for shoulder pain. So if I'm most people that have shoulder pain that are surfers, if they come to me or, or they're reporting shoulder pain to Rob, they usually have pain here. Somewhere around here. This is like the classic glenohumeral ball and socket joint. And so the simple mind might go, or maybe I should say that the other way. The complicated mind might take the shirt off and go, hey, you know, you have scapular dyskinesia either at rest or with concentric going up or eccentric coming down or all the above. Right. And, um, <clears throat> and if it's there. I'm going to say that dyskinesia is the reason why this thing hurts over here, mm -hmm. right? And so that's a very, going back to like, that's a very um, motion quality based reasoning for something that's happening over here. And so what Rob's talking about on this systematic review is they looked at, I think it was 12, 1300 athletes. Four, All of these 1401 athletes. 1,257 were overhead athletes and 144 were non-overhead. Yeah, and there, there's nothing on surfers, but the overhead athletes were like volleyball players, yep. baseball players, swimmers, which I thought was cool, yep. and um, I think handball players. And yep. um, none of these people had pain. And what they found was 60-plus um, uh, percent of the athletes had scapular dyskinesia. And now keep in mind, none of these people had pain, which begs the question, is this a normal thing that we're looking at? It, are these people living just shy of pain? Or is this potentially an adaptation to sport? And so um, we don't know is, is, is the simple truth. It and depends. It depends. <laughs> which is, so you can see how I got my name Salty PT, right? <laughs> well, I've got, I've got a whole rant on this one study just from a numbers point of view too. So you keep going and then I'll rant. Well, I think, um, I think I've kind of nailed that home. But, um, uh, uh, but so I guess, I guess kind of like it's left to conjecture. And um, the problem with that review is the studies that it looked at, what, most of the studies weren't specific on hand dominance. Okay. And, and so what we think happens is the person's dominant uh, arm, so if I'm right-handed, my right shoulder blade, is the one that's most likely to be um, dyskinetic. Mm -hmm. um, and that may or may not be um, a culprit for me developing shoulder pain. But, you know, when we look at research on baseball players... Baseball players, again, especially pitchers, these are overhead athletes that use a lot of force. Pitchers are um, incredibly likely to have scapular dyskinesia with or without shoulder pain. 
Right. Now let's take it a step back. I grew up playing baseball, and um, uh, most people that are competitive baseball players have been playing since their youth. And throwing is probably one of the harsher things that a human being can do to their upper body over and over again. But what happens is um, you have growth plates in your bones, right? And there's a growth plate right up here in what we call the proximal humerus or the top part of the arm bone before it turns into the ball that connects to the socket. Mm -hmm. Now, if I do this over and over and over and over again, right? That growth plate is essentially a... Um, a weak spot in the joint or the bone I should say and so what we know about chronic throwers is the bone starts rotating and it takes on a new morphological shape and so um, it adapts to stress just like how we've talked about in the past yeah we're not talking muscles we're not talking ligaments we're talking actual bone structure and so what happens when that thrower grows it fuses like that and now we're actually left with different bone geometry than non-throwers. And so that's called humoral or arm bone and glenoid or shoulder blade socket retroversion. So humoral glenoid retroversion. And so all that's saying is the bone has kind of tweaked a little bit. Now here's what we don't talk about. And there's no research on this. This is Salty PT's theory that will be proved in 10 to 20 years. <laughs> Rob, you know more about this than I do. So if 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 the bone changes shape here, it puts the center point of the ball in a slightly different spot in the socket, which might change the mechanical torque or leverage at the socket, which might create the shoulder blade uh, to tip or look different on a static postural exam. It'd be like... Um, and that might give us the illusion that something is wrong with the shoulder blade. But again, it could be a bony adaptation to stress. Right. Now, um, it'd be kind of like if I, um, like let's say, when we would never do this, but let's say we went into that lagoon back there with a kayak, and I decided to stand on that kayak in the middle of the lagoon, and I had one foot on one edge and one foot on the other, and I was kind of like standing like that to stabilize it, right? Yeah, I'm imagining Karate Kid. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm doing like <laughs> wax on, wax off, right? And uh, but now, and, and so let's say where that I don't know what you call a rail in a kayak and an edge. Let's call it a rail. Let's call it a rail. So let's say the rail on my left foot is nice and balanced, but now let's say I bring my left foot a quarter turn towards the middle, and now my weight is more on the right kind of stringer line of the kayak. That edge is going to tip up, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Couldn't that happen to the shoulder yeah. with how I just described? Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. But um, that hasn't been investigated. But there's there's like, it's more of a cultural divide. Um, there are uh, orthopedists, physical therapists, sports trainers, etc. That will argue with me tooth and nail that winging and any other kind of form of scapular dyskinesia is a bad thing. Yeah. And I used to be like that too. And sometimes I think it might be irrelevant, but um, it's very hard to tell. Um, there's no good way in the clinic of really measuring it uh, because it's such a complicated motion. And, um, and really it shouldn't change my end game. So like if I'm a, if I'm a purist of 
a, a, a scapular dyskinetic model. I would go, okay, here's what we got to do. Um, we got to like do all these complicated motor control exercises and you hear it like in the gym and you know, it's probably one of my biggest pet peeves as a physical therapist and it sounds like this. Okay, I'm going to set my shoulder blade on my rib cage and I'm going to keep my arm up and I'm going to focus super hard on keeping that shoulder blade tacked to my rib cage as I bring my arm up. That's totally like, heard that. That's like driving with an e-brake on. So what we're doing is we're doing something complicated with the way we're thinking about something that should happen automatic. Uh -huh. And we're creating dissonance of normal movement. So if the shoulder blade needs to naturally upwardly rotate and I'm causing a posterior depression yeah. and tipping um, and essentially a retraction, it's just I have two things working against each hold, other. Hold on. So what you're saying is that you don't normally put stuff on your top shelf like that? <laughs> well, yeah, no. You don't um, set your shoulder and then lift and be like, Trish, I'm putting the dishes away. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I, I've known patients to function like that, and unfortunately, they've been coached. Um, and, you know, I'm guilty of it, too. And um, uh, it's kind of like, uh, imagine you had a rock in your shoe, right? And you're walking around and your heel hurts with every step. And I said, Rob, um, walk normal. I want you to think, um, land with your heel, push off with your toe, flex your glute, Think about what your knee is doing in space. And you're like, dude, it just, shit, this just hurts, right? <laughs> and and we all both know if I took the rock out of your shoe, you would just automatically walk normal, right? And that's kind of like what scapular dyskinesis is, is we don't know if it causes shoulder pain or if it's a byproduct of shoulder pain. And either way, it shouldn't lead to different forms of management unless we're like kind of caught up in our own head with what's going on as providers yeah and you know you you got me thinking about two things one i know m many swimmers that have swam their whole life that never have shoulder problems they've swam for 60 70 years they're master swimmers no shoulder problems that could be a, a perfect explanation because if they were young it adapted yeah. to the stress that's right. that's one the other thing from a biomechanical point of view for a pitcher is that as it adapts, it's adapting to throw the ball harder right. by possibly changing the arm geometry and yep. making the pivot point or basically the, the end of the fulcrum swing a further distance, which then actually accelerates right. that end point faster. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's almost like nature's way of making them a better athlete at that thing that they're doing. Absolutely. I mean, I love how you talk about that. Um, you know, I played year round baseball from the age of 11 through um, senior year in high school and didn't play in college, but thought I was going to at one point in time. Um, <clears throat> decided to surf and drink beer instead. <laughs> Good call. Good call. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've had the um, as a as a as a therapist, I've had a lot of um, great experience working with really um uh, uh, competitive baseball players at the collegiate and prof uh, professional level and high school level. And, um, there's something interesting about these guys and, um, I'm nowhere near that level, but I've had a similar experience as a baseball athlete. When you're a kid playing baseball, you go through growing pins in your arm, you get dead arms sometimes. And 
we nowadays coaches have pitch counts and they try to do their best to control it and so you know if you are 12 years old and you pitch you might leave that game with kind of a dead arm in that kind of area mm-hmm. right and so um yeah no one wants to experience pain and pain is bad um but you could almost say like uh that could just be part of the process of that kid um developing his body to be better at throwing right um but what that pain generator or that tissue causing pain could be is essentially the growth plate or the bone around the growth plate essentially getting stressed over and over again um but again it's kind of a testament to how cool our bodies are and how they will adapt to repeated stress and um we're just sometimes not as um clever uh uh kind of diagnosing it as we used to think um you know i sometimes uh will work with uh other physical therapists or doctors or people that are you know really well read on the topic and some of the criticism i get when i ask people to do things is they go that's that can't work it's too simple and i (laughs) love i I personally love that feedback yeah um and i and i usually ask open-ended questions I go why do you think that can't work oh well because it's not complicated enough (laughs) you know and I'm like you know it's it's supposed to be simple that's the art (laughs) is taking something complicated and making it simple not the other way around one could even argue that all these scientific studies that get put out like this systematic review that is severely flawed from my point of view and I still haven't gotten to that but it could be just you know researchers saying, hey, listen, I need a project, so I'm going to throw this out there, right? And one could look at that and say, that's terrible, right? That's such a waste of funding. That's a waste of their time. That's a waste of their brain power. But I think at the end of the day, it's actually a good thing. It's a good thing that that even if it's a flawed study, and, and we've talked about this in the past, how really every study that is trying to investigate a scientific theory is flawed in some way or can be disproved, right? The only thing that right now that's out there is the scientific law, which is just an observed phenomenon. And the theories are supposed to try to prove the why that law exists, like the three laws of motion that I was talking about in my paddling courses, right? So Mm -hmm. why do those things exist? Um, You know, for the third law of motion, I just posted about that one. For every action, there's an equal and opposite. I saw that. That's the law, right? But the theories behind why that works are the things we've talked about is the drag forces is is it Bernoulli effect is it a combination of the two and there's all these theories right uh and so you have this law and you have all these studies if we didn't have these studies right let's i'm the math guy so i I think in extremes right let's take Mm -hmm. away all the studies and let's just say this guy came up with you know newton came up with these laws and he said these are the laws these are the way it goes and that's it you can't think mm-hmm. any other way. You can't question it. Do you know how, how, how bad that would be in general society, in innovation, in our in general growth of intelligence? Like if we didn't have scientific studies to challenge the status quo, even if the studies are flawed, if they're a little bit off, they at least help us continue to ask questions. And, and I think that this study that, the, about the scapular dyskinesis, Mm-hmm. You got it. It, while it's flawed, 
it, it like what you said at the very beginning, it helps us ask more questions about it, and it mm-hmm. leads us down more paths. And it says, well, what if we what if we investigate this part of it versus this part of it, or this part, or that part of it, or this part of it? I think that if we view it that way, that's where we get growth. That's where, and knowing full well that we're never going to be exactly correct, we're always going to be approximately correct until someone comes along and disproves us, like a salty PT. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that I think that it's a good thing, even if it, even if it it burns, it boils our blood reading these things. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we can yeah. sit here and critique this all day long, and and just and be, get super salty about it. But at the end of the day, these are good. These are really really good. Yeah, you know, and what you're saying is something I've struggled with myself. Like no one wants to spend a ton of money on going to. Um, a school and learning something only to hear five to 10 years later that what they learned is maybe wrong. Oh, crushing. Right. right? And, yeah. and, and, and so that's just the hard truth is, um, I'll speak for myself. I don't, I'm not going to say this happens to other people or other professionals, but if you're my patient, Rob, and you have shoulder pain and my job is to help you, I need you to trust what I'm saying. So I'm going to come across confident, right? So I might, go into these complicated explanations um, to educate you, and that's my attempt. And um, and uh, you you get better, hopefully, or you don't, um, uh, in some cases. And um, sometimes those complicated explanations do more harm than good. And it's really hard to kind of look at yourself in the mirror and go, if my batting average is like 75%, what's up with the 25%? Why aren't they getting better? Is it the way I'm talking about it? Is it my reasoning? Is it, um, is it, is it just something that's destitute, you know? And, um, you know, I think, I think early in my career, I was, um, I don't know if arrogance the right word, but very nearsighted, um, versus now, uh, 12 some odd years in, like, I think I said this in a past episode, like, I think part of being, um, I don't want to use the word master, but part of being an expert in anything is acknowledging that you don't know something and being okay with that and being able to communicate that uncertainty with someone yet still have that person have confidence in you. Yeah. And so it's kind of like anything. It's like maybe with when you teach paddling, like, you know, um, we were talking about a guy uh, that shall remain nameless. I sent you an Instagram post of a guy that was um, kind of yawing when he was doing some sprint pedaling. Right. And I didn't want to bias you. I just said, what do you what do you think of this guy's paddle? Right. right. And you said, yeah, I think he's yawn. I was like, OK, cool. Like, um, that's what I saw, too. And there's there, there's probably two ways we could have fixed that. Right. We could have maybe um, maybe had him think differently, like putting more uh, pressure on the chest or maybe just shift forward up on the board a little well, that bit. That was a question you had is should he shift forward or just put more pressure And it. From my perspective, it was pretty clear to just put pressure because he was yeah. pretty, pretty well yeah. balanced, but, but yeah, no, I'm sorry. Continue. So I, yeah. I, 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 I went into coaching mode there. I was no, like, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're just a good coach. You're just a good coach. I think my point, my point was, is like, um, it, the reality is it's a little bit of trial and error, right? Yeah. Um, like you you maybe could have achieved the same thing with one or two or a combination of both those things. But like, um, and, and you could have tried one then the other and got some feedback from him. And 
um, you know, given your feedback. And, and I think that's a sign of someone who's um, experienced and confident and willing to try things because they know there is maybe more than one right answer. But if, uh, you know, if, 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 uh, if you're paddling and I'm yawning and now I go, oh my gosh, like there's so many things wrong with this. Like, and I go on and on and on about how complicated paddling is. Yeah. What's that going to do to me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave that session as a paddler going like, shit, like I'm never going to get this, right? right? It's too hard. Forget right. it. And sometimes we make that mistake as therapists and providers. If I go, hey, Rob, you know, like this, like this is abnormal movement. Um, you got to think about your shoulder in all these complicated ways. And here are your problems. You have serratus weakness. Your thoracic spine is stiff. And here's a laundry list of 12 things that you need to work on. You might feel defeated by the end of that 45 to 60 minute session. Yeah. And so was that me doing my job of uh, what I thought was best to help you? Or was I trying to impress myself with what I thought I knew? Right. And so I would rather say this. I'd rather say, hey, Rob, oh, your shoulder hurts. And I'd rather have a list of that stuff in my head and go, you know, why don't you try just like doing a simple why don't you just do this 15 times how'd that feel yeah yeah okay good take that home you know and i'd rather keep the explanation simple as simple as i can while getting some buy-in and i think um you could say the same thing with um oh hey why don't you try to scoot up on the board a little bit and see how that feels you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah I no I, just... I ran into those problems i think very early on um starting coaching uh for this was i had all this knowledge in my brain and I, and I needed to get it out, right? And, yeah, we're excited to show off what you know, right? Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think that at least my clientele base and, and, and the people that you've met, they can take in enormous right. amounts of information and they want a lot of that. Right. Whereas sometimes it might get muddled. And so I'm... That's why I think the in-person is fantastic. I, I've been doing a lot of virtual coaching uh, mm-hmm. this last uh, couple of weeks, you know, with the pandemic and just being able to see the person on the other end, just the video and seeing how they respond to something that takes my brain down a different path, right? I might have a path in mind, but I'll be like, oh, I'm not going to take this exit because they're, they're getting this and they want more or, oh, no, they want this exit. The mm-hmm. other exit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's that's what keeps it exciting for me, probably for you as well. And it's like that detective once again, which is awesome. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's all good. I, I think this that that science is fantastic, and the way that us coaches and and practitioners can basically interpret the studies. Let's just make sure that we don't just go to the grave with this anymore. Right. You know, and, and, and getting back to my rant about this is that the numbers are all messed up. Like I'm a math guy and I'm looking at this going, wait, there's 1400 athletes over 1200 are overhead athletes and only 144 right. were non-overhead. And, and then mm-hmm. the, 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 the finding was that 60% was uh, uh, scapular dyskinesis in the overhead athletes. 61% of them had that and non-overhead athletes, 33%, right? So I'm looking at it going, well, wait, wait a minute. Maybe, could it be possible that in the study they found the largest sample of non-overhead athletes 
that had this condition. Whereas if you blew that popular that sample size to say ten thousand, only a hundred out of the ten thousand out of it would would drop that thirty three percent down to one percent. Mm-hmm. Right? And I just keep thinking, <laughs> standard normalized curve. Are they out on this tail or out mm-hmm. on the other tail? And same with the overhead athletes, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. like, again, if I go down that road and I just focus on that, I miss kind of the bigger picture, which is. Right the question that you brought in on the last part of your post Mm -hmm. saying, Hey, listen, you know, this could theoretically increase injury, right? Or the other side of it is, is, you know, is this an adaptation? Right. And then you got some comments. You got, you got Mm -hmm. Shane, who's like, you know, we know as a surfer surfs all the time is an athlete, I would say. Mm -hmm. And he hurts his shoulder chainsawing something Mm -hmm. over his head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And then you've got you've got uh, yet another comment that was like, well, how do we avoid this? Mm-hmm. Maybe you mm-hmm. don't need to avoid it. Right is my point too. And, and again, this study isn't clear, mm-hmm. which is uh, gets us back to our f- favorite answer. It depends. You want to do it? Yeah, it depends. It. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do yeah, it quite I, as smooth as you. No, no, no. Um, I the way you talked about it is spot on and um i think about it in a very similar way you know and and the reality is is if you go okay well rob that's like the best data we got in the last eight years so now what well almost at the end of every one of these systematic reviews they point out those flaws they go the flaws of these reviews are uh, they didn't look at blah, blah, blah. Um, the uh, authors didn't disclose their um, biases or their financial incentives because there's multiple reasons why someone can do research, like you said. Like, are they trying to make a name for themselves? Are they trying to prove that a product works? Are they trying to, like, you know, become an expert to sell a book one day? And so, um, you know, a good general rule of thumb is uh, uh, take everything with a grain of salt and, and start paying closer attention when multiple groups from uh, different organizations start saying the same thing. That, right. That's usually when there's kind of something to that. And I yeah. think there's enough of that going on with this kind of conversation of scapular dyskinesis to kind of start asking questions, you know. Yeah. Um, Now, anecdotally, which means um, nothing in research terms, but maybe inspires research, I see people with scapula dyskinesis almost every day. Or I haven't seen a patient in 8 to 10 weeks in person, but I've seen it on videos in the last 8 to 10 weeks. But if, you know, in the normal workflow, I would, it would be a regular thing for me. Yeah. And so it's, it's really... Um, I will say um, there's no good way of um, saying what's meaningful and what's not. Now, sometimes it's obvious. Like you and I talked about a guy that was a, uh, is a surfer and he maybe had a neurological injury to um, a, a, an important paddling muscle. Um, and you were like, hey, can you check out check him out? I see something kind of um, a bit different in the way he paddled and um uh lo and behold when i did an exam on him i I was like yeah this is a really rare type of winging it's a what we call neurologically induced winging meaning the nerve that goes to that muscle something happened to it you know and um kind of uh so that would be the long thoracic nerve um coming off the brachial plexus going to a deep important muscle known as the serratus anterior Mm -hmm. and so that muscle 
causes that sticking to the rib cage and that upward rotation. Now, if there's a palsy there, that that foundation doesn't want to uh, upwardly rotate, and so it doesn't want to bring the socket that's connected to it up. And so when he lifts his arm, it's like you know there's all this compensatory motion. Yeah, like and, shrugging um, and extra yeah. body motion to it. <laughs> yeah, and and, and so. Um, <clears throat> Like, that was winging that uh, carried a lot of weight, right? Like, and um, we had other evidence to back that up. So, um, we did a neurological exam. We cleared his neck to make sure it wasn't coming from his neck. Mm -hmm. We cleared his shoulder. So, we were doing, we probably had 12 to 15 tests saying, hey, uh, this winging is relevant, right? And the observational um, winging was just one of those tests, mm -hmm. you know? But if the observational winging, which is probably the most unreliable way to measure winging, if the observational winging is your only finding, it probably carries less weight. Right. And so in your mathematical terms, we're looking for like a preponderance of evidence saying the same thing. Right. And winging is just one data point. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, let's, if we were to relate this to surfing, right, right now, there's so little research, like really academic research. I think Griffith University is doing some stuff. Uh, you've got Cal State San Marcos, Jeff and Sean down there that have done some stuff. And, and I've had long conversations with them about, you know, let's, let's do these studies. Like, let's really get into this. And when I talk to them, they're all gun ho they're like yeah let's do this but my mathematical brain is like oh it's got to be perfect right, right. everything's got to be perfect and it's so incredibly i'm not going to say impossible but it's so incredibly rare that we're going to get it just right because there's so many variables happening as soon as you go into water there's even more and then you've got the wave mm -hmm. if you if you want to go beyond just paddling uh, in mm -hmm. flat water, and now you've got the wave, and let's say now we're riding. There's all sorts of biomechanical, physics, uh, mathematics going on. There's tons of science going on. Right. And on top of that, you have all the issues with the individual and the adaptations of an individual. Mm -hmm. So it's it's mind-boggling where we're on the cusp of something that could be end up being huge. Like if you look at swimming research, it started, you know, in really coming on in the 60s with coaches that had a scientific background, taking a look at it. Doc Councilman is, is probably the most famous, most famously known for this. And what he would do is he had a science background and he's looking at this from a coaching perspective. And, and over the years, you know, since the 60s, it has grown. And yet there are still issues with every single study that comes out, right? And, and if you now take that and say we're at the very start for for surfing actually doing academic studies for surfing we're at the very beginning we're back in the 60s now and and <laughs> we're looking at you know what, what is that 60 years later we're still not quite there we're not even mm -hmm. close we're just getting little nuggets here and there for swimming man mm -hmm. this, this is an exciting time for researchers yeah. to embark on this yeah the the field's wide open you know, it, it and, really um, is. It really is. And, and you're absolutely right. I think a lot of what I try to bring to the table when I work with surfers is it's a combination of my best understanding of current research like this combined with my knowledge of 
surfing from my own personal experience and study and learning from you and just trying to make the most logical uh, decisions for people or helping them make those decisions for themselves in the most logical way, I think is a better way of saying that. But, yeah. um, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, like no study is perfect. I don't think that exists. And, um, unfortunately, um, surfing is kind of like at the infancy stages of research, yeah. you know, like I can't tell you how much like baseball research trumps surfing athlete research. I mean, gosh, I could pull up 30 studies right now looking at glenohumeral internal rotation deficit, which is a specific <laughs> throwing problem, right? And you're yeah. just like, wow, like, how has that been so heavily focused? Well, baseball players are worth a ton of money. Yeah. And you got people like me trying to keep these people healthy with research based um, decision making. And yeah. As we all know, surfing's kind of been a fringe sport for a long time and only recently is kind of like turned into maybe more of a spectator sport with the introduction of live streaming contests. Yeah. And I think it'll go down that road, especially with um, it going to the Olympics, uh, yeah. wave pools, um, uh, it getting treated more like a business, as you know. Yeah. And with that comes curiosity from people like us and April Denny, who we spoke with in the past, that will get inspired to keep looking for those answers. Yeah. And my personal opinion is the ideas for research start from people like you and me. We have a curiosity. Hey, this is seemingly relevant to when I do this and that. Now I have a curiosity if that works. Let's go test it. You know? Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's ex It's exciting. It's totally oh, exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love it. And um, I'm okay not knowing um, ever uh, with a definitive answer because, um, you know, like a lot of things, you just kind of have to tinker with them and, and, and see what kind of works best for um, people. Yeah. And, and what we can do right now is just try to explain this highly complex movements that we do uh, in the simplest way. Like you said, mm -hmm. you know, and I think there's a handful of people out there right now that are, are starting to do that, which is great. I know, I know of one, um, coach at surf simply will Forster. Mm -hmm. He's a fellow scientific nerd like us, and he's doing a great job with a new web series, uh, called surfing explained. I don't know. Have you seen this yet on YouTube? No, I haven't. Okay. So take a look surfing explained. And he does these simple animations, only like a three or four minute and he talks about the physics of wave riding at different parts of, uh, of, of the wave and, and different aspects of it. And he does a great job. He does a fantastic job. Does he explain everything? No. Does he go super deep in it? No. But he, he, he explains things to the point where people start to understand and go, oh, okay, that makes mm -hmm. sense, right? Mm -hmm. Which is awesome. I love mm -hmm. it. And I'm sure I just broke like a podcast rule not to promote somebody else's show, but I love it. Like, I don't care. Like yeah. it's, it's fantastic what they're doing. Um, and, and there's, there are a few coaches, researchers out there just starting to go down that route to try to explain this highly complex thing. Now getting back to like, well, how do we start in academics? How do we get a snowball effect going? I've talked to Sean and Jeff done at CSU about it and, you know, I think we kind of came to the conclusion, like, if we can get um, identified just from a business point of view, 
from for me for paddling. If we can show that certain techniques or certain, you know, let's say methods reduce the likelihood of shoulder surgery. Well, that would be a huge benefit to the, the, the customer, the, the, the client. It would be a huge benefit to the health insurance companies, huge mm-hmm. benefit to the hospitals. Mm-hmm. You know, and right there, that's where if you follow the money, and I hate to say this, but my, you know, my business background kind of looks that way. Follow, if you follow the money, that's probably the starting point that's going to start the snowball effect. And then you can start doing things like kicking. Does it help? Right. And, and how should you have hold your hand or how should you, uh, how much angle should your, your ankle have when you're in the barrel, right? All those things mm-hmm. are all those extra mm-hmm. little idiosyncrasies that need to happen down the line. Cause I don't think anybody's going to put forth funds to grant, you know, to, to fund a study on that one little aspect, mm-hmm. right? Just for fun, right? It's yeah. got to have some sort of purpose to it. And I think, the healthcare industry is a number one target for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anybody out there that's looking to do research, <laughs> let's think about some health health benefits here because I think that's going to be a number one. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I think a lot of research is like essentially driven maybe by money, right? Yeah. Like surgeries are expensive. How do you... Um, how do you prevent the injuries from happening? Because that's much cheaper. And yeah. so um, that's where uh, kind of my role comes in with strengthening, as we've chatted about um, in the recent past, like that prevents a lot of things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like the, 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 uh, there's not maybe, maybe I'm being um, kind of myopic on this, but like when we start talking like, huh, what makes you paddle faster when you do this or do that? And all these little tweaks, like, Maybe there's not a lot of money in that right now, but like, um, what if, what if there was in the near future because surfing became like, um, the next UFC, right. Or the next, um, major league baseball. What if like for every surf contest, you had to pay a hundred dollars, like a pay-per-view and these guys and, and people like, um, wanted to pay that. Right. Then next thing you know, you, you turn this, like essentially this, um, this into a real professional business and i think that's probably like probably not the primary or secondary but like down the line effects you get researchers kind of going okay like there's something to this like um these athletes have um they need they we need to know this to make these people perform better and not get injured because their contracts are worth so much money yeah and so that might drive um, well, you more look substantial at, research. You look at surfing over the last you know, 30, 40 years, which is our lifetime. My goodness, how has that changed? right? And, and especially mm-hmm. now, you hit it, the head on the nail with the Olympics. If we ever get to the Olympics. Right. right? right. That is going to be pretty uh, mind-blowingly big change in the surf industry. Because uh, mm-hmm. that's going to be more people watching, more people getting excited about. And then on top of that, the biggest constraint to surfing is the coastline. So now you have these wave pools that really open up more inland areas, even though they're starting out by the coasts right now. Because that's, you know, we're all surfers. That's what we're interested in. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it's going to spread. Yeah. And, awesome. and, uh, and, and what are guys doing and girls doing more now in wave pools? They're doing um, more radical maneuvers. They're doing more aerials. Yeah. I saw Josh's Josh Kerr's daughter doing like full on airs at a uh, Waco, 
right? Yeah. I think she's 12 or 13 or 14, right? right. Remember what I said about the uh, number one um, uh, demographic for telling, tearing ACLs in knee? Adolescent female soccer players, right? Yeah. Are these injuries going to happen in correlation with these attempts of radical maneuvers? Yeah. And uh, will these injuries inspire more physical therapists, chiropractors, personal trainers, um, a- athletic trainers to kind of come on board to help these athletes because there is money there because people want to see these people per- perform. Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you one thing that's going to start to decline is paddling. <laughs> Which leaves us paddlers that know how to do it more room out in the lineup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're 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 so fringe, man. We're like yeah. hour long podcasts. <laughs> no one wants to hear about this. <laughs> we're going away from the money. No, oh. <laughs> it's so funny. I had it, you know, because we do the boat surfing, uh, and and they're like, well, "Why do you do boat surfing? You're a paddling guy. There's no paddling in boat surfing." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, but it's fun." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except when we go together, then we try to. Paddle in. Yeah, there. we try to paddle in. Yeah, yeah. almost run each other over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> shh, shh, don't don't oh, say that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally safe. Yeah, totally you guys should safe, come. 100%. You should come and do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, man. Um, all right, so we got to move on to our last segment because I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm calling it You Read? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> so, do you have any book recommendations, preferably something that's surfing related that uh, that you particularly enjoy? Try to uh, pick one. So, any come to mind that really yeah. you can recommend? Yeah, my um, my wife gave me the book uh, Jerry Lopez's book uh, "Surf Is Where You Find It." Ooh, and that's an awesome book. Um, pretty much, it's uh, Jerry Lopez just telling stories about the good old days and um and uh for any of you that like jerry lopez uh it's 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 amazing um and if you ever have a chance to um hear jerry lopez speak lecture or get interviewed take that advantage um i was uh when i was in um on the north shore in 2012 i was very fortunate and got to hear him uh, talk story at uh, Surfer the Bar up there in um, Turtle Bay, and uh, he just told stories for like an hour. Was he was he like on stage with a mic? Yeah, he was getting interviewed in kind of like a laid back format. Um, I forget who interviewed him, but you know he's just pretty much telling stories um, based off the questions. And um, man, how cool it would have been! to have been a surfer in, in the seventies on the North shore. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Jerry Lopez, like a lot of people. And, uh, that's definitely a book that I think is one of my more favorite surfing topic books. That is pretty cool. And that actually got me thinking, you know, this is a great metaphor surfing, being some of the first to surf on the North shore, especially like pipeline. Being some of the first to surf there are the very cusp of now, now it's packed. And now they're, they're going, like what we just talked about, they're going into the specifics of riding the wave even more critically. Whereas back then they were mm-hmm. just trying to survive, yeah. right? And so that's, again, that's a wonderful metaphor for what we were just talking about with surf research. Right. And if we had to take it a step further, look at Jerry Lopez. I would strongly argue that nobody looks 
more cool, calm, and collected surfing pipeline to this day than Jerry Lopez. And he was probably on equipment that like put him at a disadvantage, right? So like, like you, you see these guys surfing pipeline and backdoor and they're like full, like throttle, like, you know, survival stanced. And it's like, then you look at Jerry Lopez on the same wave and he's just like got his back knee bent and is like, the guy's like falling asleep as he's doing this turn on like this 30 foot wave. And you're like, how is he so mellow right now? <laughs> My heart rate just went up watching this. Yeah, totally. And um, yeah, so that's a guy that didn't need all the like the the technology, the certain fins and the yeah. certain board. I mean, like that was just, I mean, that was sheer talent, right? Yeah, and um, yeah. I don't think you can teach that. Well, again, that's you go to the normalization distribution curve, he is way out on the tail. Right. He's an anomaly. And and actually if you look at if you look at the entire pro circuit versus the number the sheer number of surfers in the mm-hmm. world, right. they are way out on the tail. Absolutely. Like way out there. And so Absolutely. we keep comparing ourselves to these professionals and we're like, I want to surf just like Kelly Slater or Mick Fanny or Joel Joel Parkinson. I want to surf just like them. But in reality, we're never going to get to there, right? It's, it's so far out on that tail. But what we're really trying to, to, to improve on is we don't want to surf just like them. We want to surf to the point where we are so relaxed that we could do whatever we want with that wave instead of thinking without thinking about it, mm-hmm. right? Just be mm-hmm. completely comfortable in every situation without thinking about it. We might not need to do these amazing... Uh, incredible anomaly type moves, but let's just get the basics down with absolute ease and effortlessness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's definitely more towards the maybe one end of the curve, but it's it's got a lot more distribution underneath it mm-hmm. uh, than the pros out in the way far far corner. Yeah. So for those well, of you guys that don't know what I'm talking about, it's like a bell curve. You guys have heard of the bell curve. Uh, you've got the middle, which is the most of the of the sample size or the population. Uh, that that would be the result of most of them, and then you got the tails way out on the left and right sides, and so the pros would be on one tail or the other, depending on how we're, we set it up. What I'm saying is that instead of trying to achieve what the pros are doing, try to achieve something that that's on their side of the pros, but ha- that's much more achievable. It's kind of like thinking of smart goals, if you've heard mm-hmm. that acronym, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, an Absolutely. achievable goal. And mm-hmm. honestly, we just want to go out. We want to have fun. We want it to be easy and effortless. And of course, we want to impress our friends. Mm-hmm. Always. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like every time I go surf with you, I have to like, you know, get in heat mode. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Rob, how's my paddling? Oh, yeah, yeah dude. Yeah, yeah. Watch for the fins. Ah. <laughs> oh, I fell again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't see that. I only saw right. the splash, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, well uh, you got to remember, uh, it was Jerry Lopez that said the best surfer is the one that has the most fun. So. Absolutely. Good loop back to, to the book. Absolutely. And I think of everybody, anybody in the lineup, you and I are usually having quite a bit of fun out there. I always, I, I, I just love like, you know, going back to that like majority in the bell curve. Like, yeah, I think I, I just love the whole experience. I mean, how, how lucky are we to be surfers and, um, how much fun is surfing like surfboard design's cool like 
like um i just nerd out on the whole thing like uh i love trying to stay in shape to get better at surfing i get really psyched up when i'm if i get a feeling on a surfboard i've never felt or if i um this will tell you what a dork i am if i know i'm going to go surf like the tomorrow like i might stay up the night before and watch footage of like tom curran or mm-hmm. dane reynolds mm-hmm. and i'll do something super like I'll, I'll kind of hone in on something like Tom Curran. He does that bottom turn where his hand is kind of like, you know, down by his side and he looks down and then he looks up and yeah. Mason Ho kind of does a rendition of it, yeah. like almost exaggerated. Yeah. And I'll just be like, I'm going to do that tomorrow. And like every wave, I'll just be, you know, and, uh, and like stuff like that is just. That really kind of keeps me going. Like, yeah. um, oh, I, I take I take silly. my son's foamy out at our spot at Spot right. X, right? And I'm like, ah, screw it. I'm gonna see if I can get one turn on this thing. And right. it's so much fun. I feel like a little yeah. grommet again. Yeah, and I mean, when I was in my like teens and twenties, like, how many times did you drive out to the beach and go, oh man, it sucks, and drive home? Like, I used to, <laughs> I used to do that all the time, and like that, what a what a waste that was. Like. Yeah. But now it's like if I go to the beach, it's like I got like three boards in the car. Well, when we could drive to the beach. Now I have one board on my bike. Um, (laughs) But like I have three boards and a hand plane and um, fins. And I'm like, I'm getting in the water no matter what. And this is going to be fun because um, it's my time to like decompress. And uh, the fun of this session is going to be finding that really random section that lets me do an off the lip and if i get to do that once i win right and um <laughs> and so that's kind of how i look at surfing is like it's more of like you're gonna and maybe this is a life metaphor but you're gonna take what you get and yeah. you're gonna make the best of it yeah have you heard the aki rule i don't think i've heard the aki rule what's the aki rule aki rule uh apparently somewhere in an interview aki was uh quoted as saying yeah i used to have this rule where i get to the beach and if it was even if it was crap I'd have to go out and catch five waves. Yeah. You know, and inevitably, inevitably, by the time he caught those five waves, he was having fun regardless, and he ended up staying out longer. Yeah. yeah. Well, we got a, a local guy at Spot X named Dave, and he goes by Three Wave Dave for the three same Three Wave reason. Dave. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, man. You just so, got to get out there. Yeah. How about you, man? What, uh, what book do you have ah. uh, in the hopper that you can recommend? So, dude, I, I pulled out a bunch, and I was like, oh, man, we could go for a whole nother hour. That could be a whole nother <laughs> rambling hour well, long. Okay, so since <laughs> this is supposed to be a small segment of the show, I grabbed one um, that that has nothing to do with surfing. Uh, it's actually from uh, Mark Twain, Following the Equator. Oh, Have you ever cool. seen this one? I've never read that, no. So I'll tell you kind of the backstory on this one. This one was a, a graduation gift from my brother. Um for a college graduation and he said a book of adventures but don't just read about them and it's basically just a travelogue of mark twain going around the world and writing about things and in my bookmark is a postcard from my first trip to puerto which happened shortly after i got this book on september 11th 2001 wow right that that mexico wow. trip was during that so uh, this is I, I pulled this one out it it doesn't have any surfing in it, but what I love about it right now, since we can't travel, this will take you anywhere you want to go, which is really cool. And Mark Twain is very humorous 
when you get through all the way that he writes. If you don't like the way he writes, I get it. Uh, it's a little tough for my brain. I have to take breaks. But he is hilarious when you read this. And did you know that Mark Twain tried surfing? I had no idea. Did you know that Mark Twain was a beat writer in San Francisco? No, I didn't. Yeah, man. He was here for a bit. Um, actually, around the time that my grandparents got married, their wedding announcement was next to an article that Mark Twain had written in the That's so cool. Chronicle, which is cool. So That's I'm, so I'm cool. going to read something from Mark Twain's uh, Letters from Hawaii. So this was uh, published in 1897. Um, this is just a travelogue of different trips around the world. He went to Hawaii in this, but he doesn't talk about surfing in it. Um, but his letters from Hawaii, which happened about 30 years prior to this book, um, 1866. I'm just going to read this because I think it's really cool. It's his description of surfing from his point of view. He tried it, okay? So he said, In one place we came upon a large company of naked natives, both sexes of all ages, amusing themselves with the national pastime of surf bathing. So that was surfing, right? First, right off the bat, all sex, both sexes and all ages in 1866. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Mm -hmm. That's pre-Duke. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like big time. Okay. So then each heathen, I love the, he said heathen, each heathen would paddle three or four hundred yards out to sea, taking a short board with him, hmm. then face the shore and wait for a particularly prodigious billow to come along. So that's how he described a wave. A prodigious billow. At the right moment, he would fling his board upon its foamy crest and himself upon the board. And here, he would come whizzing by like a bombshell. It's cool. It did not seem that a lightning express train could shoot along at a more hair-lifting speed. And then he goes on to describe his experience. He says, I tried surf bathing once, subsequently but made a failure of it. <laughs> Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I got the board placed right, or so he thought, and at the right moment too, so he thought, but missed the connection myself. The board struck the shore in three quarters of a second without any cargo, which I thought was hilarious because he's the cargo. <laughs> so, uh, and I struck the bottom about the same time with a couple barrels of water in me. None but natives ever master the art of surf bathing thoroughly. So that was his uh, one and only, well, one and only that I know of mention of surfing. I thought that was a perfect description of someone's first time surfing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds like he went over the falls. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Without any cargo, and he struck the bottom about the same time as the board. I love it. I mean, it was awesome. And you look at writers. Uh, Jack London is famous for writing about surfing, and he describes a very similar experience when he goes out. Um, and then you can go into to, to more into actual surfers that are starting to write. And I think some of my, my other books will definitely be more more modern than that. But I figured that, you know, given the time that we don't get to travel, this is a great one. Following the Equator uh, by Mike, Mark Twain. Uh, it's a really fun read. So that's my recommendation. <laughs> that, that's really cool. And how, how, how neat is it that someone like Mark Twain saw these uh, people surfing and he was just so intrigued he had to try it, right? So, like, if, like, I don't mean to get too, like, existential on us, but, um, like what 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 do we why do we surf like you know like what's the point of it like it we're just we're just 
we're not accomplishing anything, right? Yeah. We're not doing work. We're not helping people. Like, why do we do it? And then, the, like, I, I think I commented, like, um, I would imagine kind of like Mark Twain, there's just this allure where you just have to try it. And yeah. um, it, the feeling is like no other. And how lucky are we to be able to, like, experience that, you know? That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't stick for some people, but with, with others, uh, mm-hmm. man, it it sticks and it will not let go you know it's awesome yeah we are very very lucky so well we did it again man (laughs) we we wasted another hour of these people's lives thank you so much for listening this show is brought to you by saltypt.com and surfingpaddling.com and redhouseib.com one of 655 ocean-friendly restaurants designated by Surf Rider Foundation. So definitely, if you're not in South San Diego uh, to go to Red House Kitchen, go check out another one of the 654 ocean-friendly restaurants that's, that are near you to support reducing waste in our oceans. Thanks, Jim, for hanging out, man. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Rob. That was fun. Yeah, and thank you guys for listening and watching. And uh, we'll do it again next week. How about that? How about we keep it, keep going with this? I'm down. All right. Sounds good. All right. For now, we have a wonderful week. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll uh, talk to you guys later.